You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. One year ago, the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak a pandemic. Dr. Scott Gottlieb and Dr. Leanna Wynn take a look back at the most disruptive global health crisis in over 100 years. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And as you saw in our intro video, today marks one year since the World Health Organization uh, described the COVID-19 outbreak as a pandemic. And I have two experts here today to talk with me to reflect on the last 12 months uh, and where we go from here. Uh, first, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Lena Wen. She's a public health professor at George Washington University, an emergency physician, and a contributing columnist to the Washington Post. Dr. Wen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me to reflect on this um, on this somber day. Well, and I know I've enjoyed hearing from you over the past year and your thoughts as we've moved through the pandemic. So I'm excited about our conversation. Um, you know, obviously. We've written here at The Post a lot about the failings of the government amid this pandemic in many ways. Um, but we know that doctors and scientists also struggled to really understand the virus and how it worked. Uh, we think back to this time last year and what we were being told about the virus and understood and how different it is now. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what some of those misunderstandings were and how far we've come in understanding how the virus works? Yeah, I was just reflecting on it this morning about where we were a year ago when things were so confusing. I don't think any of us could have really predicted the kind of toll that COVID would have in the U.S. and around the world. And when I think about some of those key early misunderstandings, we didn't know that COVID was a respiratory illness. But we didn't know about the impact not only on the respiratory system, but on so many other aspects of the body as well. We also critically did not know, as we then found out, about the level, the role of asymptomatic transmission, that it wasn't just people who had symptoms, but also people who were asymptomatic who were spreading it, and that made containment much more difficult. We also did not know really at that time about aerosol transmission, and you put the lack of knowledge of those two elements together, and one critical part of the pandemic response that we should have had all along was mask wearing. But we just didn't have the information about asymptomatic transmission, aerosol transmission at that time. And certainly that was a key missed opportunity. One more thing here is that early on in the pandemic, we were essentially flying blind because we didn't have the data. We thought that it was only a handful of cases here in the U.S., but actually every um, infection was a canary in a coal mine that for every infection that we detected, there were so many others that were right underneath the surface. And I think we're seeing that now, again, with lack of genomic surveillance and all these variants that have been here all along that we're not picking up on. And so I look back and I think there are so many failings, including in lack of straightforward, clear, consistent communication, um, failings when it comes to not having a national coordinated response. Um, and at the end of the day, I think a lot of humility is needed um, in terms of the learnings that that we've had, because um, this has really been a very challenging year that we could not really have anticipated unfolding quite the way that it did. Well, and to your point about the transmissibility of the virus and the fact that we found out later that there could be all this asymptomatic spread, um, you know, I, I think we all agreed the government could have done better things and made different decisions. But is it wishful thinking to think that the U.S. 
that there would have been some way to avoid a large death toll from this virus, given the speed at which it can pass from person to person? I mean, it's hard to say our own counterfactual, but I do think that when we look back, and I'm sure there are going to be many postmortems done of what could have been done differently, there were multiple missed opportunities. One is overall not having a national coordinated approach, and instead we had things that were piecemeal in ways that did not make sense. I mean, having states bid against each other for masks, not having a national testing strategy, initially not having a coordinated vaccine rollout. I think not having federal oversight is um, is really a uh, is a misstep. Also, the mixed messaging and deliberately, in some cases, confused messaging between public health officials and elected officials really set us back as well, because we know that public health depends on public trust. And when that public trust is eroded, it's really difficult to get back. And then you have issues, as we're seeing now, where something as basic as a mask is seen as a political issue. And so I, I think something else that we just cannot neglect in all of this as a learning is how COVID did not create disparities, but it did unmask underlying disparities. And we also have seen that unless we intentionally set the goal of equity, we're going to have a system where the, dis the disparities that are already there will just get worse. And I hope that that's something that we also see moving forward, that we need to fix these issues that COVID has now unmasked. Well, and there are so many grim things here that you've brought up. And of course, I don't think at this point last year, many of us would have guessed that we'd have um, half a million Americans dead at this point from COVID-19. But I do want to, uh, to brighten things up a little bit and ask you, is there anything we've gotten right uh, on the response. And of course, I, I think you're probably thinking, and I am too, of, of the vaccine rollout. And I, I know at this time of last year, many of us thought we wouldn't even have vaccines. So what did we get right here? And is there any reason to be optimistic? I think there is great reason to be optimistic. So I'm glad that you are turning us in this direction, Paige, um, because I'm an ER doc and I, my mind tends to go to the worst places of here, are all these things that could go wrong. But look, if you had told us a year ago or even five months ago, six months ago, that by now, by this point in the pandemic, yes, we would have had such unfathomable loss, but also that we would have three safe and highly effective vaccines. I think we would all say, I don't know that that's possible, but this has happened. And I think this underscores how the, the brilliance on the one hand of our scientific community and the investments that were put into science, I think that's great. I think it also says something else too, and I'm going to go back to the optimistic in a second, but just you know, the, the downside for a moment is that we as Americans have been really dependent on the idea of the silver bullet. We were waiting for science to save us. You see in other countries that they were successful in fighting COVID and in returning to a pre-pandemic life by using these public health mitigation measures that we did not employ here. We had ample opportunity to employ those measures of testing, contact tracing, quarantining, isolation, et cetera. We didn't do that. We relied on the silver bullet to finally come, for science to finally come and save us. And it is. And I think that there is incredible room and incredible opportunity for optimism here. But I also think that we should reflect back at some point and think about the importance of public health. There's a saying in public health that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. And I think it repeats, uh, it needs repeating that so much of public health is invisible, but that invisible hand of public health is 
we see what happens when it's not there. Um, and so I hope that we focus both on the vaccines and the promise that they will deliver for us, as well as the importance of public health measures going forward too. There was a lot of buzz, of course, this week when the CDC released their guidelines on what fully vaccinated people can do. And I know you've talked a lot about this and you've actually said you think the guidance is too timid, especially when it comes to travel guidance. Can you elaborate on that for us? Absolutely. So I do think that the um, CDC issuing some guidance is really good. Um, and actually, in some ways, it's really empowering to see that after a year of telling people what not to do, that public health can come out and say, here's what you can now be doing. So I think that's a, definitely a step in the right direction. Here's my concern about where we're headed from here. And again, I think that we do see the light at the end of the tunnel, that we're heading into a much better place. My concern is that the major barrier going forward is not supply or administration. Again, the Biden administration, I think, has done really good, a really good job in terms of increasing supply, increasing distribution of the vaccine. But I think that in the months to come, we're soon going to reach a point where the supply of the vaccine will catch up to the overwhelming demand that there is right now. And what will prevent us from reaching herd immunity is vaccine hesitancy. And my great concern is, as we're seeing states reopen in such large numbers now, and so many places, including my state here in Maryland, is now going to be open at 100% capacity, we're losing the narrow window of opportunity to tie vaccination status with reopening policy. And so when the CDC comes out and says, and again, I think this is a good thing, vaccinated people can see one another. They can see each other in informal social settings. I think, again, that's a step in the right direction, but I think we need to go a lot further and make sure that people understand that vaccination is the ticket back to pre-pandemic life. If we don't set that message right now, as reopening is happening soon, we're not going to have that carrot anymore. If everything is reopened, then people are going to say, well, what's in it for me? And I know that's hard for a lot of people to imagine because there are so many people who are doing anything to get a vaccine now. But very soon, those people will have vaccines. And I think that we make a mistake when we think about the vaccine hesitant as anti-vaxxers. Yes, there are some people in that category who don't, who are not sure about getting vaccines and who will never get a vaccine because they truly are anti-science and don't vaccinate their kids, for, for, for example. But I think we're neglecting a very large segment of the American population who have concerns about the vaccines that we have to address, but who also need to very clearly see the incentives. And we are missing that opportunity to present those incentives unless we can say very clearly now, masks and vaccines, that equals our ticket out of this. And we need to be really incentivizing people with the reason to get the vaccine. Well, and so, yeah, to your point, I've heard people, you know, look at guidance from the CDC. And obviously the CDC puts out guidance that many people don't follow all the time, not coronavirus related necessarily. But does the agency risk losing the trust of Americans if it appears to be putting out guidance that is overly cautious, overly conservative, perhaps on this and not clearly showing people that, OK, your lives can go back to normal if you go ahead and get your shot? I mean, the short answer is yes, I do believe that that could happen. This is the tricky part of public health, that on the one hand, you need to be cautious and you need to be instructing people on safety. But on the other hand, you also have to meet people where they are. And the reality is that we have all these states that are opening up. You can't have the public health entity be telling people, don't do all these things. 
and their governor saying everything's open to 100% capacity. There's that dissonance that's there. And unless we can really bridge that dissonance, we are going to lose people's trust. And so some things that we could do going forward, as an example, is to not talk in terms of absolutes. There is no such thing going forward as 0% risk. And at the same time, there's nothing that's 100% risk either. And so I think we really need to start talking about people's values, what's most essential to them, and how can we manage the risk, reduce the risk as much as possible. You know, we people who are fully vaccinated, I think if somebody says, I am now fully vaccinated, I want to go back to my church in person. I want to go to my senior center in person. Once in a while, I want to go to a restaurant again. I want to go to the theater. I want to go to, I want to travel and visit my grandchildren. You're fully vaccinated. I think we can say, these are the things that are really important to you and your life they're pretty low risk. We have sufficient evidence saying the vaccines protect you. They also will reduce the risk of your being an asymptomatic carrier. Please go out and do these things. Get your life back and also tell other people about how vaccines are allowing you to reclaim your freedoms. I think we really need to switch around our messaging in this regard or else people are going to continue to ignore public health advice. And then when we need them, it's like crying wolf, right? That you can't cry wolf too many times. When we really want people to be cautious, we need to be able to say that. For example, we should say masks in public places, absolutely essential. But here are all these other things that you can do with your newfound freedom. I know that you've written a lot about schools um, and uh, I want to ask you about that approach. And, you know, I've written about this a lot. We have substantial evidence that schools haven't been uh, a large transmitter of the virus and kids aren't carrying it to the same extent that adults are. And yet we've seen many large public school districts offer only virtual education over the past year. And I'm wondering, do you think that that approach was science based given what we now know? It's a really tricky question because you're right that we do have growing evidence that children aren't the super spreaders that we fear that they might be and that schools can be safe if mitigation measures are put into place. At the same time, I also have great sympathy for the teachers who have been teaching in person, including in cramped, crowded classrooms that don't have adequate ventilation where mask wearing is not always obeyed. Um, and so I think that there is a disconnect because the risk to the student and the benefit to the student is very different than the risk benefit calculation for the teacher. And this is why I've been arguing all this time that it's a failure of society that we've had so many, so that we've had such high risk that's been imposed on our teachers. And the least that we could do is to prioritize teachers and school staff for vaccinations. That's something that's finally being done. And I recently wrote a column, I think in the last month or so, about how both sides of the reopening column or of, of the reopening debate have been getting it wrong. That if we focus on the issue of risk, we're never going to agree because some people are going to say, as long as school uh, in, in school risk of transmission is no greater than transmission in the rest of the community, that's fine. There are others who will say any level of risk higher than me sitting in my house teaching is too high. And so I think we need to reframe the conversation and talk instead about are schools essential? I think we should all say that in-person instruction is essential. And especially coming into the fall, we need to set the target right now that every school should be open fully in person. There might be some students and teachers who still need virtual um, learning, but we should set the expectation that in-person should be the norm. But if that's the case, what do we need to do in order to get there? It's not about getting to zero risk. It's about managing the, the risk, understanding that the benefit is so substantial. Well, Dr. Lena Wen, it's been 
great speaking with you today. And unfortunately, we're out of time and we'll have to leave things there. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paige. I look forward to the conversation with Dr. Gottlieb. Well, stay with us. I will be back with Dr. Scott Gottlieb after this short video. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham with The Washington Post, and I'm, well, I'm delighted to welcome for my next guest, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Dr. Gottlieb. Thanks a lot. So I want to look back to January 2020 with you. And I know you, that you were one of the first people to really sound the alarm about COVID-19. Um, when did you first start worrying about the virus? Were there a few key moments, if you take us back to that time, where you felt this is going to be a real problem? Yeah, I started following it um, when the cases first started to get reported in late December. There was, uh, you know, some reports of an unusual cluster of pneumonia in Wuhan in late December. And the news stories looked concerning. The moment I think that I, I sort of hit the alarm bell, at least from my perspective, um, was around mid-January, probably was around maybe January 14th or thereabouts, or it was sort of early January, when there was a report that the number of cases had quadrupled overnight. So China was reporting around 50 cases, and then the next day they reported 200 cases. I think it was a Saturday. And at that point, I called someone who worked in the White House, um, I, Joe Grogan on Domestic Policy Council, uh, and said, this looks really concerning. Um, you know, this is something that you sh should be paying attention to. And Joe got engaged very early from a policy standpoint and started to get the Domestic Policy Council very engaged in some of the early aspects of the response. He had asked that weekend, I think it was a Saturday, um, and I think it was a holiday weekend, and uh, might have been Martin Luther King weekend, and he asked for a briefing early that week from HHS and started to get the Domestic Policy Council engaged. The National Security Council had been meeting on this already, um, but the Domestic Policy Council started to get engaged. But that was the moment for me when, when things started to look like they they were turning for the worst. And the other, you know, the, the, there were sort of concerning things in the reports. For example, all the cases that were getting reported were severe pneumonia. Now, that's that was suspicious that there were a lot of cases going unreported because it would be unusual that the only cases that are getting um, that are actually occurring are cases of severe pneumonia. So it suggested there's a lot of mild and moderate cases that weren't getting captured by the Chinese. So there were a lot of concerning things in that early data release that weekend that caught my attention. When I asked this question to Dr. Wen, and I also want to pose it to you, when you think about last year at this time, are there any moments at which um, through our policy response, we could have really changed the way that this pandemic was going to play out in this country? Or is that wishful thinking? I suppose, I mean, you know, obviously this is a very transmissible virus, um, but is, are, there, are there specific moments where you think we could have changed the course of this? Well, there were a lot of political mistakes made, and I think we focus a lot on that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be focused on the political mistakes that were made and the mistakes in messaging in terms of how the White House approached this. But I also think that there were operational and execution mistakes made. We over-relied on our flu surveillance system, um, the influenza-like illness surveillance system, in part because we didn't have a diagnostic test deployed. That was a mistake, not being able to get a diagnostic test into the field. And in part because we thought this was going to present like flu. And so there was confidence within CDC and other, other venues of the government, among other public health officials, that the influenza-like illness surveillance system was going to be a sensitive uh, detection tool for monitoring spread in the United States. And in fact, we were missing a lot of spread. 
It wasn't until early March that Bob Redfield called Howard Zucker, the New York State Health Commissioner, and, and said, I think you have a problem. Because if you look at the data, the influenza-like illness um, surveillance data, that's when you finally saw a separation in terms of flu cases falling back to baseline and a spike in people presenting to emergency rooms with flu-like symptoms. And so you knew something else was circulating. Uh, it wasn't a sensitive tool for detecting COVID spread. COVID didn't necessarily present like flu. It didn't spread like flu. And by adopting a flu model, I think we um, didn't detect it and we, we underestimated the asymptomatic spread. For example, the reason why we stuck for so long to a view that a lot of the spread was through contaminated surfaces, what we call fomites, is because we weren't detecting the asymptomatic spread because we thought this spread like flu. So when we saw clusters of illness occurring that couldn't be explained by a sick contact being within that cluster, we assumed it was uh, it must have been a contaminated surface that got people infected when in fact it probably was some asymptomatic carriers. We also stuck to a view that this spread through droplet transmission when in fact in some settings it's probably spreading through aerosol transmission. Even now if you press some public health officials they'll still say that the flu tactics, the flu model was the right um, is the right posture to use in trying to monitor for coronavirus spread. So I think that that was an early uh, mistake that we made and it allowed the country to get seated. It's not that we would have averted an epidemic. We would have had an epidemic, but I think we could have averted a situation where we got so heavily seated with infection at the outset that it became hard to come back from that. I wanna ask you about that. So the science then of, of what we've learned about the how, how the virus spreads. And to your point, we thought it was more that it could remain on surfaces and then we learned that it was airborne. But I'm not sure that message has gotten through to a lot of people. When I look at policies in schools and churches and other places, there still seems to be a lot of emphasis on cleaning surfaces. Um, and I just wonder, do you think that, you know, what we know about the science of that has really been made clear to the public in terms of what are the most effective ways of stopping the spread of the virus? Yeah, I mean, the science is still evolving. CDC has been putting out updated guidance slowly um, that's starting to, I think, veer in a direction that more of this is through uh, droplet and aerosol transmission and not through contaminated surfaces. Um, you know, but people are reluctant to say what it isn't. Um, and so no one's really sort of put a stake in the ground saying really a, very little of this is probably spreading through contaminated surfaces because it's hard to prove that with certainty, with the kind of certainty where I think people would be really confident saying that. Um, but I do think that the message is starting to gradually get through that more of this is through um, through aerosolization and droplet transmission. And that, that also caused us to underestimate masks at the outset because we didn't recognize how much of this was through droplet transmission and also emphasize that quality of masks mattered because if you're going to have situations where this was spreading through what approximated an aerosolized pattern, um, a cloth mask wasn't going to be good enough in that setting. And so you saw public health officials underestimating masks. CDC actually actively discouraged masks early in the, in the epidemic. I talked to one airline executive who was told that CDC told him not to um, have flight attendants wearing masks because they thought it would actually potentiate spread. CDC thought it would potentiate spread because they wouldn't wear them appropriately and it would potentiate touching of, of your face. Another example where this played out in policy is when I was talking to the White House policy folks um, on the Domestic Policy Council early, early on when the recommendation was made for the national stay-at-home uh, order. Uh, it, was in, it was in part based on a concern that they were looking at New York and seeing the grave situation that New York was in, and they thought a lot of the spread was through contaminated surfaces, shared surfaces on subway systems. So they were very worried about cities that were operating, continued to operate 
um, their mass transit systems. They were looking at Chicago and Boston and Detroit, big cities with big transit systems as being the next cities to so-called so fall, you know, and, and face a sort of a situation on par with what New York was facing. When in fact, if, if we are right now, that shared surfaces aren't as big of a contributor to spread, you wouldn't have necessarily looked at those cities. You would have been more focused on other cities like New Orleans, which ended up having a much bigger epidemic than some of those cities with big uh, transit systems. So it shows you how um, not understanding these things and, and sort of looking at this through a, a flu mindset and a flu lens and not being able to determine what the social compartments are where the spread's occurring caused us to miscalculate and maybe make the wrong policy choices. We just didn't gather information effectively and we didn't report information effectively. Even early on in this in this epidemic, if you look, if you talk to doctors in New York and you say, how are you treating patients? What clinical information are you looking at? They were looking at case series from China and Italy because there were no case series being reported in the US, just simple case series on who was getting sick, what interventions were being used on them and what outcomes were they experiencing? Not complicated studies, just simple top line data. The Chinese and the Italians put out very good case reports uh, on their collected clinical experience and eventually the Brits did as well. For a long time, physicians in the United States were looking at that data because we didn't systematically collect it here in the United States. So there were a lot of things, a lot of mistakes made in terms of our execution. I think we could do a lot better next time if we have sort of an operational mindset around dealing with these kinds of disasters. We're uh, almost two months into the Biden administration. In your opinion, how are they doing? Do you wanna give them a grade? Look, I think they're doing very well. I, I think they're, they're making good decisions. They're making tough decisions. Um, you know, they've, they've gotten the rollout of the vaccines, I think, right-sized, and that's gaining a lot of traction. I think they've made good decisions that were, were in some cases, difficult decisions. Um, you know, one that, that maybe not isn't so obvious is they made the decision to start distributing vaccine through um, pharmacies and community health centers through the federal channel. So, you know, before it was all going to the states, and the states were making decisions about where to distribute it because the governors really wanted it that way. The Biden administration said, no, we're going to distribute some of this through a federal channel that we control that's not necessarily under state control. So that wasn't very popular, probably, with a lot of governors and maybe all 50 governors. And then they used that um, that vehicle to prioritize teachers. They said, you know what, we're going to federally prioritize teachers for vaccination. Those are tough decisions. I mean, those there's probably some political grumbling from some quarters about the federal government making a decision to do that. I think it was the right decision. Um, and those kinds of things, I think that kind of bold leadership has served uh, served them well. Um, they've made a lot of sort of as decisions about the future in terms of trying to prepare um, for the fall and for the winter, laying the groundwork for supply to be available, for clinical data to be available so we can make decisions in the fall and the winter about things like, do we vaccinate children? How do we send kids back to school? You've got to do all those things in advance and be thinking about what decisions you're going to face in the future and what information and opportunities you want available to make the right decisions. I just spoke with Dr. Wen also about the guidance that we saw from the CDC on what fully vaccinated people can do. And I know she feels like it's too timid in some ways. What's your own thought about the guidance? Were they too conservative? Uh, what would you have done differently? Well, look, I think it's too prescriptive. The idea that, you know, the CDC is going to have this sort of detailed guidance about what you can and can't do, no one's going to follow that. You need you need simple recommendations to people, people who are fully vaccinated. I think it's it's reasonable to tell people who are fully vaccinated 
that you should ca you can carefully reengage in the things that are important to you. You know, you're still you're at reduced risk of contracting COVID and at reduced risk of having a bad COVID outcome. But reduced risk doesn't mean no risk. And if you're someone whose underlying health conditions puts you at higher risk, you should be prudent. Use precautions um, where you can, when you can, especially in a high prevalence environment. And also be very mindful about going into settings where you can put other people at risk, because even though you might not get sick, you can still carry COVID and be an asymptomatic carrier. That is, that's the kind of guidance I think we should issue. That's that's an understandable um, sort of conceptual framework for people to operate in. But saying you know you can you can hug your son's uh, children, but you can't hug your daughter's children at the same time. I mean, that's basically what the guidance says. You can be with you can be with one family at a time. I mean, these kinds of things. I don't think the average person is going to be able to assimilate that, follow it, and the risk is that you just start ignoring it. And so, I would be trying to come up with much more bottom line, practical advice to consumers on how they can um, reengage safely. That's, I think, ultimately going to break through. There's been, of course, a lot of talk about the various the variants of the virus coming from different places. And I know you've said you're not actually that concerned that these variants will lead to a surge in cases. Why not? Well, I wouldn't say I'm not that concerned. I think that B117 is going to become the most prevalent strain in the United States. So it'll be a majority of infections. That doesn't mean that we're going to have a sort of fourth surge of infection this spring because of B117. Um, we're much further along than the UK was in Europe when they experienced a wave of B117 infection. We have more people who've had COVID, fully a third of the public's been infected with this, and that prior immunity does confer protection against B117. We've also vaccinated um, 25 million adults. We're going to have 100, probably 100 million adults, at least with one shot uh, by the end of this month or in early April. So we're getting more immunity into the population. So that's a pretty good backstop against a, a fourth wave of, of infection. I think the possibility is that B117 causes us to have a slower, a lower slope or a, less, a more gradual slope in the declining cases, maybe plateau before we continue down on decline and maybe have some pockets where you have either resurgent infection or just we don't kind of get out of it really quickly. And maybe B117 causes us to have higher prevalence in the summertime, whereas you might have seen no infection in the summer. Now that we have a more transmissible strain, we're still going to see some transfer in the summertime. But I don't think it's going to change the overall trajectory. I think the overall trajectory for the spring and the summer is down. And I think we're going to have a relatively quiescent summer where people can get back to doing the things that they enjoy. But this isn't going to be a linear path. I think as we get into the late fall and the winter, you know, we're going to face resurgent infection. We're not going to vaccinate the whole public. I think if we get 60% of adults vaccinated, that's going to be good. Um, we're not going to get much beyond that. I mean, it's not vaccine hesitancy. I think Dr. Wen had it right. It's it's sort of complacency. It's people not feeling an urgency to get vaccinated or getting vaccinated is too difficult. And then there's the open question whether we're going to vaccinate kids. I think vaccinating certainly grade school kids is a 2022 event at best. Really, the only opportunity we're going to have is to put vaccines into high schools. And I think it's an open question whether we make that a decision to do that. Ultimately, it's going to be a policy decision as much as it's a clinical decision. In terms of thinking about the kids, we should think about social compartments. Do we put it in high schools? Do we put it in junior high schools? Do we put it in middle schools? We're not going to put it in grade schools. I think that's the proper way to think about it. Those are going to be hard decisions that we have to start contemplating at the end of the summer. But Assuming we don't vaccinate kids, assuming we only get 60% of the adults vaccinated, um, there's still going to be enough people who are vulnerable to this infection that you're going to get some, um, some spread in the wintertime. 
We're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you about schools since you brought up kids. And we're hearing some concerns that even though teachers are being put at the front of the line for getting vaccines, there's still some thought that schools may not look normal in person five days a week for kids in the fall. Uh, is that something that's acceptable? What's your thought on what schools should look like next fall for students? I think schools could be five days a week in person for kids. Schools aren't uh, an inherently safe environment, but I think that they could be made much safer if we take the right steps in the schools. And if you look at districts that have been open, my district's been open, but you look at North Carolina where they've opened the schools, even in high prevalence environments, you know, they had masks, they kept the kids within social pods. I think that's very important to have kids within a defined social network so you don't have the risk of large outbreaks try to create distancing where, where you can, improve ventilation, um, improve air quality so you don't have aerosolized spread in a confined space. The teachers hopefully will be vaccinated by then. I think you can create safer conditions that kids can go back to school. Uh, ultimately, it turns on what the prevalence is in the local community. So if we have a raging epidemic in the fall, it's going to be more difficult. I think the situation in the fall and the winter is more likely to be that we have pervasive spread we're not going to have um, an epidemic on the scale of what we had this year. There might be localized outbreaks where it's heavier in certain regions at certain times. And you might have to make decisions to, to um, draw back on the school in those areas where it's happening. But the idea that we're going to have to keep schools closed simultaneously across the whole country in the fall, um, we, we shouldn't be in that position. I think we're much more advanced now, much smarter about how to do this safely uh, and have the opportunities to do that. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, but thank you for joining us. It was a fascinating discussion as always. Thanks a lot. Well, please come back and join us tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern for First Look, where my colleague Jonathan Capehart talks to reporters and columnists from the Washington Post newsroom about the biggest stories of the day. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.